Today we'll be reading and working through Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. According to a 2020 New York Times article, complaining can be good for you. The writers of this article said this, quote, complaining is honestly just part of the social fabric of our lives. It's part of how we communicate. In fact, the writers would go on to say that it strengthens our friendships, which kind of makes me wonder, what are our friendships built on? And what is the chief reason for complaining, they would say, that makes it almost justifiable in the world's eyes? Well, life isn't perfect. Life isn't perfect. Now, to be fair to the article, it does admit that often, or at times, I should say, we wrongly uh, use complaining and maybe overuse it. But as a general principle, it's a normal part of life, and it's an acceptable part of life that actually can improve your health. Now, we ought not be surprised by the world's, the lost world's thinking thinking like this, but if we were to evaluate our own conversations, what comes out of our own mouths, we might find that a decent portion of our words are expressions of dissatisfaction and criticism. Our conversations can so easily shift to grumbling. Now, God takes grumbling and complaining seriously. Throughout the scriptures, he has direct commands against it to not grumble or complain. From Philippians 2 to James 5, even Ephesians 4. But even outside of the direct commands to not grumble or complain, the Old Testament provides us plenty of stories where God takes grumbling and griping as a serious offense against him. An offense against his good provision, his sovereign will, and his good works. The story this morning of Israel is a prime example of their complaining and despising of God's gracious provision, and we'll see there is a consequence that comes with it. So let's read this section. Let's read this little story, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 begins, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became Impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. There are four movements to this story, four parts to it. We see it goes from the complaints, or you could even say the sin, of the people, to judgment, to a confession, to deliverance. And all of this is to drive the point that the judgment for sin is remedied by the grace of God. 
The judgment for sin is remedied by the grace of God. Let's look at our first movement of the story here. Verses 4 through 5. We have complaints against the Lord. Complaints against the Lord. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Here the people despise God's grace because in their travels... They are getting tired, irritated of what's going on. Now, there have been many travels, and especially as we jump into the Old Testament, there is some backstory we need to understand. How did they get to where they are now? What's been going on? What are the expectations on them? You might, you might remember the history of the people of Israel. God had given a promise to the man named Abraham given him a covenant to him that he would be a blessing, that he would receive a promised land, and that he would be made into a great nation. And from Abraham came Isaac and Jacob, and from Jacob came 12 sons, and from which we get 12 tribes of Israel. Israel, the people find themselves eventually enslaved in the land of Egypt, not the promised land, but they're stuck in the land of Egypt. What started good turned into slavery there. So much so that they eventually cry out to the Lord that he would rescue them. He would deliver them from their bondage. And God, in his compassion, sends Moses to bring them out of that dark land. And he does so by many miraculous and powerful wonders. He brings them through the Red Sea, which is another amazing act of deliverance by God. Brings them to Mount Sinai, where they receive the law of God so that they could enjoy fellowship with their God and be be distinct from the nations, and they receive the covenant of God. And after that point, then they take a journey. They start traveling to the promised land, and they finally arrive to the edge of the promised land, but when they get there, they end up being denied entrance because of the rebellion against God. See, at the edge of the land, they'd sent 12 spies out to survey what's there, what they're up against, the people who live there. And as the spies come back, all but two of them, who would be Caleb and Joshua, report of a terrifying people there and an impossibility to take the promised land. Obviously, forgetting the promise of God to give them that land. And while Jacob and Joshua plead for them not to forsake the Lord or rebel against him, the people do anyway. And so in divine judgment, God sends them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years where the first generation was promised to die and not enter the promised land, but their children would. All except of that first generation, all except Caleb and Joshua who did believe the Lord. They would be allowed to enter. Now, At this point, after their 40 years of wandering near the end, at this point in the story, Moses is looking to lead them back to the edge of the promised land. The 40 years is up. Time to go back. Time to take it. However, along the journey in their way is the land of Edom. And so Moses, unlike what he usually does to most kingdoms, he sends a message to the king of Edom asking, can we have passage through your land. We're not going to trample it. We're not going to destroy it. We just want to cut through. We want a shortcut, direct route to the land God had promised us. But sadly, King of Edom denies them such a request and even threatens them with the force of his military. Now, it's find it interesting that they didn't 
that they would ask in the first place and then they didn't fight back. And so you wonder why. Well, we find out in Deuteronomy 2 that God had told them not to contend with Edom. Why? Because Edom, the people of Edom were actually their distant relatives. The descendants living in the land of Edom were from the line of Esau. Israel was from the line of Jacob. Esau and Jacob were brothers. And so they weren't to contend with them. They weren't to fight them. So they have to go around them. That's why you see at the end of verse 4 there, they're now going around Edom. And they had, once they got rejected, they ended up at a place called Mount Hor, where Aaron would die and pass on the priestly line to his son Eleazar. And while they're in the midst there, they come into conflict with the king of Arad. And they cry out to the Lord, please save us. Please give us victory over them. And God does. And this happens right before our story today. They just experienced a victory in battle and then take off to journey to the Red Sea to go up and around Edom. Now on their way, we read at the end of verse 4 that the people become impatient. They become impatient and frustrated on their journey. They begin to grumble and complain against God, against Moses, and against the very provision of food that God has given them. Now, the word impatient here uh, could be translated, the soul of the spirit, or the soul of the people became short. The word impatient means short. It might seem strange, but if you think of the opposite of that, we talk about the long suffering of God. God is long-suffering, he's patient, he endures longly with his people, with sin even, with rebellion, with our slow sanctification process at times. And the opposite of that is what the people are doing. They are being short-tempered, irritable, discontent, discouraged, wore down, had enough. Imagine yourself in the midst of this crowd. You could hear the complaints being murmured by the people. You might hear the often used question, are we there yet? Or why are we going this way? Who gave them the map? How come we have to be in this miserable place? But see, their complaints are not just about the location they're in, because the text says they spoke against God and against Moses. They begin accusing and blaming Not just Moses, but the sovereign Lord who had miraculously delivered them from captivity in Egypt. It's fascinating if you look at your Bibles, what it says in verse 5, the people spoke against God. I want you to focus in on the name for God used here. It's God. This is the name Elohim. The name Elohim, it is used, this this name of God focuses on the all-powerful nature of God, that he is the sovereign one with all authority, and he gives life, he creates, and he sustains life to all those who he pleases. It's no surprise that this name of God, Elohim, is used in Genesis chapter 1, where the focus there is on the all-powerful sovereign one with all authority, who creates all things according to the power of his will and his word as he sees fit And then he doesn't just create it and leave it. He provides sustenance for it. He creates it in a way that it is sustained. 
So the people are grumbling against the God who has all authority to do as he pleases and has used that authority to call Israel to be his own possession. God demonstrated his power in delivering them from Egypt by providing food and water in the midst of the desert. And yet they complain about him. They falsely accuse God and Moses of even intentionally bringing them out to kill them. And so they twist the words and intentions of the Lord. They protest against his sovereignty and his goodness. They reject his providence. And you ask why? It is because God has not met their wants and expectations. God didn't provide the comforts they wanted. And they're so desperate for them that they view Egypt as better than being with God. Beyond that, that lack of complaining about food and water is bizarre. You look at it, it says in verse 5, For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. But which one is it? There's no food and water or there's worthless food. Obviously, there was food. It was the manna that God had provided for them, was constantly providing for them. But I think we see a point here that we tend to go to extreme with sin. Of course, there was food, but it wasn't what they wanted. Sin and complaining tend to go to the extreme and we can see that at times in our own lives. You think about, you know, you're hungry. So I go to the kitchen and I open up the fridge or I open up the pantry and I proclaim to all, there is nothing to eat in this house. While there is plenty to eat in the food and pantry that I'm staring at. Why am I proclaiming that? It's because it's not what I want. It's not meeting my desires. Israel had food. But their attitude toward it turned into a despising. Despising the food that God himself provides. So much so they call that worthless food. Miserable food. So the supernatural provision of God here is belittled to the level of garbage. The people were talking about the how good the food was back in Egypt. And that was the good old life. If only we could have that slavery again so I can enjoy that steak. It's just foolish. They forgot the power. They forgot the provision. And they forgot the faithfulness of God in the very food he provided them. Their hardness of hearts and and their ungratefulness are now exposed. And this really wasn't the first time they've complained about God. In Numbers 11.6, they begin complaining about, again, the manna that God was providing for them. And as you read these stories of grumbling and griping, if you pause and take a a step back and look at it, it really is a testimony to how patient God is, how faithful God is to His people and His Word, even when they gripe back at Him. And this really would be the last time in Israel's journeys that they would grumble about the food and wish they were back in Egypt. This would end it. 
But we see that complaining comes from the one who is ungrateful for the grace of God. Complaining comes from the one who is ungrateful for the grace of God. They were impatient. That was the root. That was the problem in their heart, the sin that produced the ugly fruit of their sinful words. The despising and the rejection internally within them as they thought about what God was doing led then to the sinful outburst of their tongue and it only tends to grow. Sin likes to grow. It doesn't fade unless it is intentionally put to death. I think as we ponder our own lives, we realize just like here with them, our reactions to the circumstances we face reveal what's really in our hearts. Reveals what we really love. So you wonder, how do you handle life circumstances? Sure, we think about the situation Israel is in. It's not the greatest, the most desirable in the sense of wandering in a wilderness, walking through a desert. But while they they long for the relief in the promised land, they also long for their own selfishness to be satisfied. Even when they had God constantly providing care for them, God in their presence leading them, it wasn't enough. They waited for the promised land to come, God to take them there, but they didn't wait well. They were impatient. We too are faced with the present circumstance of waiting. We're eagerly waiting for the coming of our Lord. Our hearts should be longing for this world to pass away and the new heavens and the new earth to come and that we get to be in the presence of our king. We wait for that. So are we waiting well for that? Or are we being impatient? Are we continuing to be faithful to our God and his precepts as we cling to the hope that Jesus will return? It will happen. Let's be careful that we don't take our eyes off the goodness of the grace of God that he has shown us in Christ. And let's not be people that complain constantly because the Lord's plan is just taking too long. Or it's not the plan we would make. We can be thankful that the Lord has provided for us, especially his grace towards us in the guarantee of eternal life through Jesus. Now, imagine... With this going on, how grieving this would have been to the Lord. This is the God who intentionally has cared for them. Constantly. Showed them amazing power through his deliverance. And they treat him this way over and over again. It begs the question, what should the Lord do here? Think of it from... The Lord's perspective. As a holy God, righteous God, what should he do? Well, we see what he does. In the second movement of the story, we see there's judgment from the Lord. Verse 6. The Lord sends poisonous snakes. It says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. As punishment against the sinful People, the rebellion, he sends what's called fiery snakes to inflict them. And if some of you were there, you might be thinking, snakes, 
Why did it have to be snakes? And the snakes here described as fiery, or some translations say venomous. The point of that description is that the venom from the bite causes a burning and a stinging sensation that brings inflammation and then death. And snakes are not the most pleasant of creatures. You can imagine the terror that they'd be facing. Snakes do a great job of blending in with the surroundings. Some are very hard to see. Some would bury themselves in the sand, and as their victim would walk by, they would leap out, jump out, and bite. And so it would have been awful. I don't know how many of you have been hiking before, and you hear the rustling in the leaves or bushes next to you, and it causes you to jump. You're instantly on guard, instantly wondering, what do I do? What is that? Is it going to get me? Some of you have maybe been in desert regions where there are rattlesnakes and you might be walking along and hear that rattle going off. Instant terror. Instant, what do I do? Instant, is something going to get me? And so the people are in a situation where snakes are everywhere. Snakes are biting. It would have been horrific. But I find it fascinating how Moses here, when he writes verse 6, says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents. We've got a change here of the name that's used for God. He went from saying they grumbled against God, the all-powerful sovereign one, to now saying the Lord, this is Yahweh. Your Bibles probably have it in capital L-O-R-D. This is the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh sends the fiery serpents. The idea here is it's the same God. But it's drawing more of an emphasis that would be used to the rest of the story. An emphasis that they foolishly rebelled against the self-existent, sovereign one who is full of compassionate love and faithfulness for his people. So much love and faithfulness for his people that he chose to make a covenant with them and to care for them. And so they despise the one who alone has the power and love to care for them. And the result of such judgment that he sent was that many died. Listen, they rejected God and hated his provision of the manna, so instead God gives them just wrath. Their rebellion has brought the venomous bite of death. One writer said, The people received something from the wilderness rather than from heaven. They received a sting instead of a blessing. They found themselves dying instead of being preserved alive by that miserable bread. Every bite was a reminder of the consequences of sin. When men fail to be thankful for the Lord's provision and are irritated about where God has them in life, mankind tends to grumble and complain about it. And so judgment comes upon those who despise God's grace. Judgment comes from those who despise God's grace. It was God's compassion that he had delivered them, that he had given them the bread from heaven. But in the face of such grace, they despise it and want the luxurious food in Egypt, the luxurious food from their bondage and slavery. 
They thought it would have been better to be in Egypt where they were slaves. And so as we step back and look at what is really going on here, what it is is a battle for sovereignty, a battle for who is in charge. The people thought that they knew what was best, that they knew what they really deserve, and it's not what God is giving them. And so they forget that they don't deserve anything good. They try to exalt themselves in their thinking, but instead it is the Lord God alone who has the sovereign rule over his people. He is their creator. He is their redeemer. He is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and he has made them his own people by his will. They are to submit to him. They are to obey him. God is not forced. He is not obligated to provide anything good for sinful man. And when men act in rebellion against God, one can be sure that judgment awaits. We see this even in the New Testament in Romans 6.23. The first part of that verse says, For the wages of sin is death. And if you are living your life in rebellion against God, unwilling to repent and trust in Jesus, then you can be sure that you will receive the wages of eternal death in hell. Sin has consequences. It brings a bite. It brings a sting. And ultimately that sting is death. But you can be rescued from that sting. You can be rescued from the coming divine judgment of God. The good news is that God himself has secured the way for you to be saved, for you to be rescued from that, for you to be delivered from his wrath. And it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only way. And if you turn to Jesus in repentance and you trust in him, that penalty of death and divine judgment is wiped away from you. Because Jesus endured it for you. But if you reject the gospel, then you can be sure that eternal wrath is waiting for you. Because you have sinned against an infinitely holy God who is your creator. Romans 2.5 warns us that those who reject Jesus are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So please, repent today if you have not done so. The good news is that for those who are trusting in Christ today, we do not receive divine judgment. Jesus took it for us. God does not punish those who are in Christ. He may discipline. He may discipline us for our sin but he does not punish. Whereas Israel here has shown throughout the Old Testament several times that their hearts were hard and far from God. And and while it shows that, it, it points us to see that not all of ethnic Israel here was saved. And for us, for Christians, when we are impatient and we are irritable and we are grumbling and criticizing, we're really just demonstrating that we despise God's mercy. Because we forget what we really deserve, which was divine judgment. We forget the gospel of how good God has been to us. 
And we have no right to complain. But even when we do stumble and fail and sin, we remember that God is patient with His children. His Spirit works in us to bring us to confession and repentance, to bring us to desire to continue to live for Him. And Romans 8 beautifully begins by telling us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and ends by telling us, by the way, nothing can separate you from that love of Christ Jesus. But we still take sin seriously. Because God takes sin seriously. Now imagine you're in the wilderness too with the people. People are being bitten. You hear the screams of agony. Friends and loved ones are dying. What would you be thinking? How would you feel? What would you do? Well, we see what they did in the third movement of the story. Verse 7, there's confession to the Lord. Confession to the Lord. It says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Here the people recognize their sin. They experience the misery and the peril of the situation. And they see that it's brought about because they have sinned against Yahweh. They have sinned even against Moses. And to their credit, they confess. They repent. They realize their guilt in blaspheming the Lord. And no, they don't just say we've sinned against Elohim, a God. They admit they've sinned against their covenantly faithful God, Yahweh, the one who has loved us this whole time. Yeah, we have sinned against him. We've done wrong. Their wickedness was not to some distant, unknown deity, but it was to the very God who was near them. It was a very attack against the one who loves them and saves them. This is a reminder Just as David reminds us in Psalm 51, 4, all sin is first and foremost against God. Even when it is directed at someone else, it is first and foremost against God, against His holiness, against His holy standards. And so, in all sin, even if it involves somebody else, we must repent to God. We must confess to the Lord. The people had recalled here All the past times where they grumbled and complained and God had been kind enough to deliver them. And they hoped in desperation He would do so again. In desperation, they're turning to the only source of hope that they can find and that they know because it was obvious they could not cure themselves. And so the people go to Moses in confessions, pleading, Moses, please intercede to the Lord for us. And so we note that confession comes from those who see their sin against the God of grace. Confession comes from those who see their sin against the God of grace. When we disregard, uh, we disregard God and the undeserved kindness that He shows towards us, when we must again draw to Him in confession and repentance. We admit, I have sinned. We don't hide it. We confess it and admit it. And plead for his forgiveness. And the good news is, is he does forgive. He washes all our iniquities away through what Christ has done. So what do you do when you're bitten by the sting of sin? 
Do you go on in it? Do you continue in it? I would urge you, don't. Stop. Playing with sin is like playing with a poisonous snake. You will be bitten in the end. And what does Moses do? Well, he prays for the people. He faithfully seeks the Lord's help for them. And I find this fascinating because, don't forget, Moses had been sinned against also. And, you know, if it was me, at this point in all that's happened, I'd probably be like, okay, that's enough. I'm done with you. Let you all die because of what you did. God said he would start over with me, so enough. But Moses doesn't do that. Moses shows amazing humility and that he sets aside his the wrong done to him and his own desires and he intercedes for the people. He he provides a good lesson for us that those who know how gracious God is and how much how how much grace we have seen received from God it helps us to show compassion towards other people by praying for them in their most desperate times. Prayer is the best thing, the greatest thing you can do for someone, the most helpful thing you can do for someone. Because in prayer, we come before the throne of grace to the one who has all the power, all authority to do as he pleases, and we lift this person up. We intercede for them and say, God, help them. Provide what they need. Obviously, you know what is best. It takes humility to do that. It shows that we depend upon God, not our own wisdom, logic, or strength. So we can follow the example of Moses here and show compassion by praying for each other. But what would the Lord do then with these pleas? They plead in confession. Moses prays for the people. And you wonder, okay, God, are you going to immediately deliver them? Well, that brings us to the last part of the story. Verses 8 through 9, we see deliverance by the Lord. Deliverance by the Lord. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God graciously provides healing. Though the people had despised God and the provision of God, God would once again provide life for them, a life-sustaining way to be saved. was not obligated to do it. They didn't deserve it. But God graciously provides it. This is the answer to the prayer that Moses brings. Now, I find it interesting. They ask for the Lord to remove the snakes, but God doesn't say He's going to remove the snakes. He leaves them there for that time being where they're at. So people are still being bitten. But he gives a way for them to be healed from any bites. And he promises that he will heal them. He says, if they look, that person will be healed. They will live. It's not they might live. Or, well, if they do that, we'll see, you know, are they good or bad? You know, how their work's doing, you know. There's no potentialness to this. It is, you look to where God says to look, you will live. Now, it is fascinating that God has him fashion a bronze or copper. It's one of those two. 
snake and put it on a pole and lift it up. Snakes are not admired. They weren't admired by the people of Israel. They typically brought fear and were seen as a detestable animal. And for the Old Testament uh, Jews, it was associated with the devil, with the evil one. You think back to the fall in Genesis 3. Satan, through the serpent, tempts Eve. And we have Adam and Eve sin and fall from, through the temptation brought to them by the serpent. So it's associated with the fall. Okay, so it's very interesting, God. Why would you use then an image of that for people to look at? One writer said, this is an extraordinary act of cultural shock, an exceptionally daring use of potent symbols, as the people had transformed in their own thinking the gracious bread of heaven into detestable food, so now the Lord has transformed a symbol of death into a source of life and deliverance. So the manna was to be a good source of light, yet they looked at it and said that was detestable. So God took something detestable and made that an image of source of life. He flips it on them, and it's just an example of how merciful and gracious our God is. I mean, after being sinned against and sending judgment, He doesn't leave them all to die. He could have, but He doesn't. He provides a way of deliverance from death. And this deliverance would come to those who obey by looking in faith upon where the Lord says they should look. It wasn't just look anywhere. Look at the tabernacle. Just look at Moses. There was a specific direction God gave, a means by which they were to look upon that image and live. Moses he did make the, the serpent on a pole. The snake lifted up before the people served as a symbol of life and death. When they would be bit and look at it, the power of the deadly venom is eradicated. It's eradicated when by faith they obey the directions God had given. This is where you look. And their life was restored. And they knew, the people knew that the Lord's promise That, okay, God said, if I look here, I will live. Okay, God promised that. So the people who feared and believed the Lord obediently rushed to see this deliverance. Faith is involved here. Deliverance comes to those who trust the grace of God. Or we could flip it this way. Deliverance comes to those who trust the God of grace. Who trust the God of grace. I mean, imagine how we would have felt if we were bitten and then we heard that the Lord has given a way for us to be saved, to be healed. I would imagine that we would rush to go see this serpent lifted up. There would probably be a sense of relief knowing, oh, great, God has provided a way. Phew, I can live. I can be forgiven. Though we're in agony, we might even have a sense of thanksgiving to God. Thank you, Lord, for doing this. I know you didn't have to, but thank you. We might also have a renewed sense of fear of the Lord. Oh yeah, God takes sin seriously. And this glancing would not be a casual, half-hearted glance. The idea of the word here used for looking or seeing the serpent lifted up carries the idea of paying careful attention to. 
looking intently at. They were to look in faith. Look, trusting and obeying, God said he would heal. I will, I will believe him. It's no wonder that the image of the serpent being lifted up was used by Jesus in John chapter 3 during his conversation with Nicodemus about new life, that you must be born again. We, we know that famous verse, probably the most well-known verse of the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know that. But did you know that two verses before that, in John three fourteen through 15, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In the midst of that discourse, right before the, like, what are the most beloved verses of the Bible, Jesus draws upon this story in the Old Testament. That he himself, like the serpent that was lifted up to find life for people who had sinned, he is the greater one who would be lifted up, that as people look to him, they would be forgiven of their sin. That in him alone, they would have life. See, the sting of sin affects all of us, affects all of mankind. We are born with this poison coursing through us. And the judgment of God awaits to fall on all mankind because of their sin. All have sinned. All naturally deserve the wrath of God. And as the afflicted Israelites in this story looked in faith to find life, so too must everyone now look to Jesus to find eternal life. Jesus himself is the one lifted up on the cross, which, by the way, a cross was a detestable image of death. It was not fancy jewelry like we wear it around today. It was an image of cursing and death. And yet Jesus was lifted up to be such an image that God would take that and transform that image to now be where life is found. In Christ and in Christ alone. Jesus hung in our place for our redemption. And we look to Jesus in faith. And in doing so, we will be delivered from God's wrath. He accomplished the satisfaction of God's wrath for his people on the cross. He actually achieved atonement for you, for your sins on the cross. So that John 3.33 would say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Yet that verse also ends with a warning. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. For those who have not looked upon the Savior for life, you must repent of your sins. You must trust in Jesus, believing that He he did bear your sins on the cross. He did bear the wrath of God in your place on the cross. He does save His people. So trust in Him today. Don't wait another day because you don't know how long you are going to make it with the poison of sin streaming through you. Trust in Christ today. 
for those of us who have trusted in Christ and are trusting in Christ, we continue to daily trust in Christ. We continue daily to look to Jesus in dependence and thanksgiving. We look to Him being reminded, yeah, Jesus, thank You for the Gospel that You were lifted up in my place that I could have reconciliation with God, peace with God, eternal life, no fear of condemnation. And when we fail, because we will, we will sin until we go to be with the Lord in glory, we confess our sin and we turn again to the Lord. So let's replace our complaining with the better habit of thinking God, thinking the Lord that He is lifted up in our place and then in Him we live. And in Him, He provides undeserved, amazing care for us. Now, if you're like me, you might wonder, whatever happened to that bronze serpent? Well, the Bible tells us. In 2 Kings 18.4, we find out that they kept the bronze serpent and ended up worshiping it. They ended up offering sacrifices to the staff with the bronze serpent on it. So in 2 Kings 18.4, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, in purging, trying to purge the idolatry out of Israel, he takes it, he breaks it, and throws it away. But this little story here in Numbers 21, it provides such a significance for us as we see the greater one lifted up. No one can rescue people from the wrath of God except God himself. God is the Savior in this story. So as we watch the movement from complaining to judgment to confession to deliverance, we see that only by the grace of God can the penalty for sin be removed and life be given. May we use our hearts and our mouths to praise Him for such marvelous grace. Let's pray. Father, we give you the praise first that we have your word to read of such stories that are true and that show us the seriousness of sin, sin against you, an infinitely holy God, the seriousness of your justice and your wrath, but also the amazing grace you display towards sinners. We thank you that Christ took our place, that he endured the cross, that he was willingly lifted up so that our sins would be paid for and that they would be washed away from us who trust in you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not looked to Christ, has not trusted in him, that they would do so today that they would stop gambling with their eternal soul and they would turn to the only Savior, who is Jesus. Father, may those of us who know your goodness, your grace, may we grow in thanksgiving. May we grow in using our hearts and our mouths to praise you, to express our dependence upon you, to express your goodness your goodness even to a lost and dying world, that others might hear of the one who is lifted up so that we would be saved. 
And we pray in all this, God, that you would be glorified. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.